0: You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, with the scribes, mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of the Jews, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma shabakthani," which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: If you would remain standing, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, something always appears at the very last minute for me when I'm standing up here. And something that sort of popped off the pages as the passage was being read is that they offered him wine, but he didn't take it. And uh, Lord, we acknowledge that all week long, we have been offered the easy way out, the comforts of this world to dull our pains and to lull us to sleep. And if we were to be honest, Lord, we have taken the easy way out a number of times. We have not endured the sufferings of Christ. We have not taken up our cross, Lord. But we have sought the ways that would numb us from pain and difficulty, Lord. And for that, we repent. And today, Lord, we find our freedom and our life in Christ's faithfulness, Lord. For as much as we've taken the easy way out, we acknowledge together that Jesus did not. And in this moment, Lord, as we behold the cross, help us to see, Lord, where we have failed, Christ has prevailed. For all of our sin there is abundant grace and mercy and faithfulness enough for all of our sins and all of our lives lord and so lord we we take our eyes off our weakness we take our eyes off our inadequacy we take our eyes off our burdens we take our eyes off of all of our discouragements this week lord and we once again place them on jesus christ to see His the blood and water flowing, mingling down, Lord. Coming to meet us with redemption. Coming to meet us with grace and forgiveness and cleansing and life. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have life and life abundantly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right, so Mark... Our narrator, who has essentially been answering the big question, who is Jesus all along, is going to conclude where he began. If you remember from the very beginning of the year, Mark 1 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is Mark's thesis. This is him answering the question, who is Jesus? You see, Mark, the narrator, has known who Jesus is all along. He stated that from the very, very beginning. But as the gospel unfolds, it becomes clear that the people in the story do not know who Jesus is, not fully. In fact, the question keeps arising, who is this? Who is this Jesus? He calms the storms, and the the disciples look around, and they ask themselves, who is this? But here in Mark 15, it finally clicks for the very first time. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. If you remember from the story of the Wizard of Oz, um, Dorothy and the other characters Uh, Eventually, come to the Emerald City to see the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. But there's this this scene where Toto, the little dog, sort of walks off the camera or out of the camera and ventures off and finds a curtain. And Toto pulls back the curtain. And as he pulls back the curtain, we see the, the true Wizard of Oz. In fact, he says, Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And we see who this true Wizard of Oz is. Behind the veil is a weak and powerless failure of a man. And really the progression of the story up to this point is all of their hopes lead to disappointment. And this is the direction that Mark seems to be taking for us. All this hope, all of this hope, and now utter disappointment. In a sense, the gospel of Mark is leading us to see behind the veil. But here's the difference. As we, the readers, are brought behind the curtain, what we're seeing is just who this Jesus is. And we're led to the very opposite discovery. It's not hope leading to disappointment, but it's disappointment leading to hope. See, Jesus' death has appeared like weakness and failure by any measure, everyone that is watching is saying, well, there it, is. there it goes. Just all gone down the tubes. It's done. All those years wasted. But when the veil is torn and Jesus breathes his last, we see who Jesus truly is. This, in fact, is the power of God on full display. What looked like a defeated failure of a man is actually the victorious king, truly, this man was the son of God. Now what this tells us is that the question of who Jesus is can only be answered when we, like the centurion, look to the cross. The full picture of Jesus is not found in his baptism. Let's retrace the story here. The full picture of Jesus is not found in him casting out demons or healing the sick or calming the storm, or multiplying the food, or even on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is where many people will search for Jesus today. They will seek Jesus in the miraculous. They will seek Jesus in healing. They will seek Jesus in wealth and health and tranquility. But that's not where the true revelation of Jesus Christ is found. But if you really, truly want to know who Jesus is, and you want to see Jesus, and I have a hunch that that's why you're here today, if you really, truly want to see who Jesus is, then you're going to have to join with all the saints that have gone before us and look to that old, rugged cross. As Fleming Rutledge put it, the cross is the climax of the story of Jesus. This is where we find out what Jesus is all about. The cross is where we discover the incredible power of God. The cross is where We discover the incredible love of God for us. The cross is where we discover the incredible wisdom of God in Christ Jesus. And so, as we look to the cross of Christ today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage under four headings. We're going to look at the crucifixion, the cry, uh, the curtain, and the centurion. The crucifixion, the cry, the curtain, and the centurion. All four help us to see. What's occurring here and why this event is so significant, why this event we're reading about today continues to be the center of human history. Let's look first at the crucifixion. The crucifixion. Now, today it is very common to see crosses. Crosses on necklaces. You probably have one today. Crosses on cars. Crosses on steeples. Crosses on walls. For us... The cross is endearing. The cross is sentimental. Maybe even for some, the cross is simply decorative. And because of this, the cross has become for so many of us, well, it's lost its scandal. When the Apostle Paul talked about preaching Christ crucified, he said, I came and I preached Christ crucified. That was my message. I was really clear about what I was. And he describes preaching Christ crucified as a stumbling block. And the word for stumbling block is where we get the word today, scandal. The word of Christ crucified, scandalous. It also means a triggering word. Now, last month, a very, very prominent leader in the United States uh, likened the particular actions of an opposing political party as a lynching. You read about this? Described their specific moves as a lynching. And people were very, very angry about this across the aisle. And the reason is because this word is extremely triggering, lynching. That's not just a trivial word. That's not just a word you kind of throw around. Why? Because lynching has a very grotesque history in our nation. Images come to our minds of something very, very offensive beyond the moves of a political party. It's a triggering word. And the cross was this object for the Roman world. This was a very scandalous object. This was a very scandalous picture. There was nothing sentimental about this. There was nothing decorative about this symbol. It was as if we had an electric chair hanging behind me, or a noose hanging from our steeple, or pictures of a a lethal injection. It It was a gross symbol of capital punishment representing pain and shame and the most brutal form of punishment. Now, the crucifixion was horrific uh, for multiple reasons. One is it was physically painful. Mark describes scourging. Scourging was the process of whipping someone on their back in such a severe manner that it would tear the flesh from a victim's back. It would also involve the exhaustion of having been beaten and then being forced to carry the crossbeam a long distance from the city to outside the city. There was the sharp agony of the nails as those nails would be hammered through the hands and through the feet of an individual in order to fasten them to a cross. And then there was the slow torment of labored breath that required a person to pull up on those nails on, in their hands and their feet and to rub their raw back against a splintered cross Every time that they needed to take a breath, it was prolonged pain. In fact, this was a process that was distinctly designed to maximize pain, to keep you alive just long enough to really, truly suffer. It was also so socially painful. The purpose of the cross was not just intended to hurt someone, but intended to shame them, it involves mocking. It involved spitting on someone. It involved stripping them naked. The entire crucifixion process was intended to display and humiliate its victims in some of the most public places. This was not in some tucked away corner in the city. It was in the most prominent location so that everyone walking by would say, look at that pathetic individual. What a shame. There was also stigma surrounding the crucifixion, especially in the city of Jerusalem, because For the people of God, in the Hebrew Bible, the law of the Torah, it was stated that a man that was hanged from a tree was cursed by God. And so often the individual would be crucified outside of the city. Get your curse out of here. We don't want the cursing of God anywhere near us. And so it brought social isolation as they were crucified outside of the city. This and so much more is what is wrapped up into Mark's brief little statement here in verse 24, and they crucified him. And they crucified him. Listen to the words of Brennan Manning. He said, The gospel is not a children's fairy tale, but rather a cutting-edge, rolling thunder, convulsive earthquake. By entering human history, God has demolished all previous conceptions of who God is and what man is supposed to be. We are suddenly presented with a God who suffers crucifixion. This is not the God of the philosophers who speak with cool detachment about the supreme being. A supreme being would never allow spit on his face. This is not a God who is distant from suffering, ruling and reigning from some far off, removed, distant celestial palace on his throne. This is God incarnate ruling through suffering and reigning from a cross. Jesus identifying with the suffering of humanity, Jesus identifying with the transgressors, with our sin, entering in to the deepest hurts of our humanity, even into death itself in order to deliver us into the healing of his kingdom. Crucifixion. We see secondly the cry, verses 33 through 37. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lemasek Baknani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. Now note something with me here. So far, between Mark 14 and Mark 15, Jesus has remained fairly quiet. At his trial earlier in Mark, it says, Mark tells us that he remains silent. During the process of, of walking from Jerusalem to Golgotha, there's no mention of Jesus saying anything. There is no mention of Jesus crying and agonizing under the pain of nails being driven into his hands. Or his feet, he's not responding to the mocking. But now, at this specific moment, he lets out what is described as an earth-shattering cry. And the question that I have is, why now? Why now? Why not earlier? Why not when he's being condemned? Why not when he's being mocked? Why not when he's being crucified? Why now? And I believe the answer is because he is now facing the darkest and most painful moment yet. About 15 years ago, Mel Gibson produced, at the time, one of the highest grossing R-rated films. And it was called The Passion of the Christ. And it was an instant hit among Christians and beyond. Uh, for one reason, it was the, the one movie that Christians could go watch an R-rated R movie and not feel bad about it. And uh, But also because uh, it, essentially reenacted the very brutal, grotesque process of Jesus being crucified in very graphic detail. And it was a very emotionally stirring movie. It was very eye-opening. I remember seeing it in the movie theaters for the first time. There wasn't a dry eye in the theater. But there is something necessary to note here, and it's that the gospel writers, and specifically Mark, the gospel writer that we've been looking at all year long, The gospel writers intentionally don't go into the bloody details. Have you noticed that? They intentionally don't talk about the blood and the gore and the brutality because that's not the objective. He states very simply, he was scourged, he was crucified. And I believe that's for two reasons. One is because Mark knows that his original readers in the first century Roman Empire would have been very familiar with what a crucifixion was all about. They didn't need to be reminded. They probably, every single reader, had at least witnessed one in their lifetime. But secondly, and I believe more importantly, it was because Mark's focus was not strictly on the physical pain of the cross or even the social pain of the cross, but Mark's focus was on the spiritual darkness that Jesus is experiencing. Mark tells us that there was darkness over the land for three hours. And that darkness is indicating something in the story. It's sparking something for the reader. Because throughout the Bible, practical darkness often represented spiritual darkness in a number of ways. The first way that it represented spiritual darkness is it represented the human condition. Living in darkness, blinded by what the Bible describes as sin. Sin is worshiping anything or anyone other than God, and looking to anyone or anything to find ultimate life, hope, purpose, and meaning. Sin brings darkness, the the Bible describes. And darkness is that disorienting existence of living without the light of God, being separated from the presence of the glory of God. Listen to how the Apostle Paul, later in scripture, would describe what Jesus is accomplishing in this moment on the cross. Colossians 1, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What's Jesus doing in this moment? He's delivering us from the domain of darkness. As the land grows dark, what it's showing us is that Jesus is now entering into that domain of darkness, our sin shattered experience, in order to deliver us out. How are we delivered unless someone enters in? This is where Jesus is going. Additionally, darkness represented God's judgment, the wrath of God poured out on unrighteousness. We see this uh, displayed in the Passover. Uh, We see this rather in the the Exodus account. The darkness comes over the land of Egypt. We hear about darkness as we read throughout the prophets, specifically the prophet Amos. And Amos 8 describes God turning the day at noonday dark. And the meaning is this, that there is darkness over the land when God draws near to judge. Darkness means God is drawing near to judge. And this is significant to this story that we're looking at here because the physical pain is one thing, and and don't hear me wrong, this is agony. I'm not trying to diminish the physical pain of a crucifixion, it was brutal. But this cry is reserved for something even more painful than the physical pain. This cry is reserved for something more painful than the social pain. What Jesus is enduring is the unimaginable pain a judgment from God. From the cross, Jesus actually quotes and fulfills much of a psalm written hundreds and hundreds of years before, Psalm 22, that opens famously like this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. I cry to you, God, and you're not listening and you don't come to rescue. It's interesting that throughout the Gospels, Jesus interacts with God as Father. Remember when the disciples say, hey, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? He says, okay, when you pray, pray like this, our Father. The prayers of Jesus, he addresses God as Father. That is is the term that Jesus often uses when he interacts with God, but then something changes here. Something dramatic is changing here. Jesus goes from calling God Father to my God Jesus has offered himself to bear the judgment of our sin, which is separation and rejection. The cross, at the cross, he, Jesus, is experiencing the rejection of the Father that we deserve so that we can receive the place in the family that only he deserves. What what does the cross mean for, for you? What does the cross mean for me? It means that Jesus was forsaken by God so that you, through faith, could be accepted. Jesus was abandoned so that God would never abandon you. But The question is this, how do we know that this is what is being accomplished here? How do we know that it's the cross that brings us back to God? How, how do we know that it's the cross that brings us approval and acceptance and adoption and a place in the family of God? Well, that leads us to our third point, the curtain. Verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In an old school church, we would have gotten a lot of amens on that last phrase right there. From top to bottom, amen. amen. Okay. Mark is uh, focused on the cross right now. But he does this interesting thing. He, he pans out for just a moment. And he takes us from Golgotha, now away from Mount Calvary, down the road, back down the Via Della Rosa, through the gates of Jerusalem, to the temple, through the inner courts, to the Holy of Holies. The whole temple structure was marked by separation. And this is important to note. Upon the first century temple mount, there were a series of divisions and courts that were separated by these gated walls. And so the first gate was called the gate of the Gentiles, where if you were a Gentile, you could come and worship in a very specific portion of the temple, but go no further. Then secondly, if you were a Jewish woman who was ceremonially clean, according to the Jewish law, you could enter into the, through the next gate and be present in what was called the inner court. Then third, there was the gate to the innermost court, where Jewish men could be present. And then lastly, as these concentric circles get narrower and narrower, lastly was the Holy of Holies, where God dwelt, but this was off limits to everyone but the high priest. Only one had access to the presence of God on one specific day of the year. So think about this concept. The presence of God in this degree was reserved for the most holy man on the most holy days of the year, and for everyone else, there was exclusion. For everyone else, there was separation. And at the entrance of the Holy of Holies was a curtain. And this curtain was not just a curtain. It was extremely thick and heavy. It served as this barrier, and it was separating the place where the glory of God dwelt from everything else. And it was a clear picture of our separation. It was a clear picture that we don't just naturally in our sinful state belong in the presence of a holy God. Now, there are um, different aspects of the gospel that at different times will really press on the emotions and speak to to the deep needs of society throughout history. And for many generations in our nation, up until just about a few decades ago, there was a very common universal sense of guilt amongst people. Whether you were religious or non-religious, people just felt deep down that there was something that had gone wrong in the human heart and that there needed to be forgiveness somehow and people were seeking in some way to relieve that sense of guilt and seek forgiveness. But I think that there's been uh, a significant cultural shift away from a sense of guilt. Most people that you're gonna meet on the street walking around are not walking around feeling weighed down by the heavy sense that they are guilty before a holy God. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not. They're just not walking around with that sense like they were before. But I, along with others, would argue that today, many people are now walking around with a heavy sense of separation. Guilt was the general feel of the 19th and 20th century. For the 21st century, men and women are experiencing a sense of separation. And this manifests itself in a number of ways. For many, the world feels disenchanted. For many, it feels like the world has just been, all the spiritual life has been sucked out of existence. It feels dry and bland and disenchanted. For many, loneliness now is a deep, deep problem. In fact, loneliness now is being categorized as an epidemic in our age. Relationships are becoming increasingly difficult. Romantic relationships and friendships are becoming uh, increasingly difficult. Digital connections, which we thought would bring us together, have only served to bring more and greater barriers and separation in our lives. All of our desperate attempts to promote individuality and promote the autonomous you has left us feeling more disconnected, more alone, more fragmented, more lonely, Separation. But the curtain speaks to this ache. And it makes sense of why, if you can't necessarily put your finger on what it is, why you feel at times that deep disconnect in your life. Whether, you, whether or not you can identify what you feel disconnected from, there's just that deep sense I feel disconnected. I feel separated. I feel fragmented. And the curtain speaks to that and says that you were actually created for wholeness. You were created to be connected. You were created for spiritual connection with God. You were created for relational wholeness. You were created for emotional wholeness. Not these fragmented, disconnected lives. You were created to live fully intact. Fully intact. But through sin, separation has come into this world. What sin has done is it's brought separation between you and others. Sin has brought separation inside. And ultimately, sin has brought separation between you and God. Fragmented lives, separation. Separation. You were made to live intact, sin has brought separation, but here in Mark showing us that the curtain has been torn in two is essentially saying this, that everything has now changed because of Jesus. Everything has now changed. Your story doesn't need to be marked by separation anymore because the curtain has been torn. And as Jesus breathed his last breath, at this very moment, Mark pans out and he says at that very moment, the curtain tears from top to bottom, can I get an amen, just to remind us of who has done it. Just to remind us of... Who brings this reconciliation? The tearing of the curtain means that Jesus, our final and great high priest and forever sacrifice has now made a way for anyone and everyone to come into the presence of a holy God, no matter how sinful, no matter how broken, no matter how hurt. So that you can be reunited with God and experience the renewal of your life that occurs in his presence. Jesus is experiencing the tearing away from God and the tearing away from humanity and the tearing away even in his own flesh so that we can be reunited. The writer of Hebrews would put it this way. Therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the, what? Curtain. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how broken I am. you don't don't, don't understand how filthy I am. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, removing that stain that no hand washing or shower or therapy or ritual could ever cleanse. Access into the presence of the living God. The writer of Hebrews says, through faith in the crucified Jesus. Through faith in the crucified Jesus. Let's look finally at the centurion. We have some things to learn from the centurion. It's just a real quick mention, but I want us to notice some things. Look at me in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Two things to note here and then I'll be done. We see the picture of faith and we see a picture of grace. The centurion, for how new he is to the Christian faith, he's been a Christian by my estimate about, uh, one second, displays the true nature of faith when he confesses this, truly, this man was the son of God. What do I mean? Well, Remember that in the Roman Empire, the term son of God was reserved for Caesar. This was the term for Caesar. He claimed to be divine. Son of God was not a strictly like religious saying, a religious term. This was a statement of allegiance. And a Roman soldier like this centurion would have surely pledged his allegiance to the emperor. He pledged his everything to Rome. He pledged his everything to Caesar. And so when he makes this confession, Son of God, truly this man, this crucified, this bleeding man on a cross between two thieves is the Son of God. He is saying, this is the one who deserves my allegiance. Jesus now is my true king. Faith is not simply intellectual assent. Faith is not simply just thinking right thoughts. Faith is not simply just heartwarming feelings towards Jesus. Faith is a change of allegiance. What this man is saying is, Caesar had my life, Caesar had my service, Caesar had my livelihood, Caesar had my future. I served X, Y, Z with all I had and all I have, but now I give it all to Jesus. He is now my king. He is now my everything. We talk an awful lot about giving Jesus our heart and not nearly enough about giving Jesus our allegiance. Give Jesus your allegiance, not this and this and then I keep this to myself. We give it all to Jesus. Faith is putting all our chips in on Christ. All right, the picture of faith. Lastly, the picture of grace. You guys have been great today. (laughs) The picture of grace. Now, the centurion, he would have represented someone really far from God. I mean, think about this. This is the guy that likely was holding the hammer that drove the nails through Jesus' hands and feet. This is no innocent individual on the scene. And he was unlikely, an unlikely convert for many reasons. He was non-Jewish. He was a Gentile Roman individual, which means he did not belong naturally to the people of God. He was not naturally a child of Abraham and so on and so forth. And to add to it, this was a trained killer. He was a brutal, hardened individual, very likely. And if there was any individual that you could call too far gone to receive grace, too far gone to be saved, it was him. Think of anyone in your life right now that you're just like, they are way too far gone. The centurion was more, more. And yet, this is the first person in Mark's gospel to explicitly confess of who Christ is. Truly, this man was the son of God. What are we witnessing? We're witnessing the effects of that torn curtain blowing open the categories Rushing into this world, his eyes are being opened to faith. He is finally seeing, when Jesus breathes his last breath, he finally sees who this man was. Despite his tainted, despite his broken history, God is showing him grace, the grace to see and believe and be transformed and to be now re-identified in the family of God. I love this story. I will never forget this moment. A few years back, I was at a pastor's conference out of state. And I was leaving one of the sessions, leaving the auditorium. And I walked past this individual in the doorway. And I recognized his face, but I can't place him. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm not so great with names, but I'll never forget a face. And I'm trying to place, who is this guy? And as I'm passing through the door, he says, wait, Christian? And as I heard his voice and I saw his face and I put it together and I remembered that this was, a, this was someone I was friends with, as a teenager, and we used to you know, run around as teenagers, which were not, full disclosure, my brightest days. And I will never forget with, the, with just utter perplex what he said to me next. He said, you got saved? <laughs> and I was like, well, thank you for your vote of confidence in me. Uh, yes, matter of fact. And I love that because the grace of Jesus Christ should be shocking. As the centurion went home this day, I have to imagine, like, wait, what? You, him? As Jesus is breathing his last breath, we need to pay attention to this. He's asking a question, why? Jesus asks the question, why? My God, my God, why? And here we see God's answer in the centurion. And if you look around this morning, you see the answer to Jesus' question. Why did Jesus die? Why was he forsaken? And we are the answer to rescue men and women who are far from God, to save those who should have never been saved, to save the people that didn't belong, To save the people that would shock anyone to hear that they got saved. To give us new life. To give us a new identity. To give us a new family. And to give us a new eternity. Through faith in the crucified King, Jesus Christ. Who is this? Who is this? Truly this is the Son of God. Amen?